0: It's good to be back with you all here. It's good to be back with you again. Uh, if you would please turn with me this morning to uh, Zechariah chapter seven. Uh, it's the same text that we read uh, for the call to worship, and I'm going to read a larger portion of uh, Zechariah chapter nine. Uh, but we are going to focus on just those uh, those first two verses, uh, verses nine and and ten as we continue our series in the Minor Prophets. I'm going to turn myself down just a little bit here as well. All right, I think that it was too much. We'll find the right balance eventually. Can everyone hear me all right? Still coming through? Okay, excellent. So Zechariah chapter 9. And I'm going to start reading in verse uh, nine. If you would uh, follow along with me, the word of the Lord. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow and made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Verse 14 Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet, and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his beauty and how great, how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Let's pray. King Jesus, we rejoice that you have come. We rejoice in all that you have done. May you bless us through your word and by your spirit this morning, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, the king is here. Good news. We've been uh, spending a lot of time in the series talking about this future king uh, who was to come, who is coming. And now we get to this passage in Zechariah chapter 9. And this is the great triumphal entry of that king. The king is here. This is is the entrance of the king as he comes in uh, riding on uh, his donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And, of course, we know that this prophecy, this description was fulfilled by King Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem at that triumphal entry, as it's it's commonly called. Jesus' arrival and entrance to Jerusalem is recorded in each of the Gospels. Matthew and John will directly quote this passage, this prophecy from Zechariah. Uh, But all four of the Gospels, they describe this, this epic, triumphal entry of King Jesus as he approaches on the donkey, approaches Jerusalem, the city of the king. But what's interesting, the the drama of the text as we read it here and as we read the gospel accounts, is that Jesus' triumphal entry was not the kind of triumph that we would expect. It didn't look the way that we might think. He did not march in and lay waste to all the enemies. He didn't come in and overthrow Rome and the Roman rulers that a lot of his people and his followers wanted him to do. He did not ride in on his regal chariot. He did not accomplish any military triumph, but he triumphed in a different way. He rode in humbly on a donkey. He didn't bring war with him, but he brought peace. So what kind of king is like this? That's the question. Who who is like this King Jesus? Those are the questions that we want to consider this morning but before we get there, just we need to take one more step back, as we have been doing in this series, and, and think about just the, the background and the larger story that's being told. So last week, uh, Cody, he so faithfully preached from the text of, of Zephaniah, not to be confused with Zechariah. But if you were there, you'll remember that rejoice was one of those, those words that he considered and highlighted from the text. See, Zephaniah's, uh, uh his book ends with this incredible and, and wonderful, uh, too good to be true promise that God was going to restore all of his people's, uh, their livelihoods, restore them, redeem them, bring them back uh, from exile. See, that's why they needed restoration. They had been brought into exile. The northern kingdom in 722 B.C. was conquered by the Assyrian Empire and driven into exile. And the southern kingdom at this point now in the the timeline of the history had also been brought into exile. The southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem had fallen into the hands of the Babylonians. And that was the Babylon was the great nation that rose and and took over Assyria. And now they were the big uh, superpower of the day. And so during that time, God's people were, were out east in exile. They're waiting for their d- deliverance and their return. And they were relying on the words of God's prophets to give them hope and comfort during this time. They're waiting for God's promise and that promise of Zephaniah at the end of this beautiful picture of restoration. They were, they were waiting for that to come true. And then one day it finally did. Or so they thought. See, that's where we are now in this point of the story, the larger story of the minor prophets. You remember that these these 12 prophets, they're all telling one unified story that that all points us to Jesus Christ. And this one story or this the story of the the minor prophets, it ends with these three prophets, uh, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. And these three are sometimes referred to as the post-exilic prophets because their ministry happened after or post the exile. And so that's where we are today. Haggai and Zechariah, they were contemporaries with one another. We're going to consider Zechariah primarily. And they aided and, and helped in the work that the people who had returned from exile were doing. You might know the, the names Ezra and Nehemiah and those books of the Bible. Those, those stories are happening at the same time. Haggai and Zechariah are encouraging Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel—all these people to to do the work of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the wall and and all of these things—and and so that's what they're doing. And God's people were excited, and of course they were excited. they had just returned from from exile and from slavery, and they'd returned back to their homeland. And they're rebuilding their temple. They're rebuilding their way of life, and they were feeling like the promise of, of God had finally been uh, fulfilled. But then there starts to be some grumbling among the people. Things were not working out the way that they had hoped as they were rebuilding and doing this work. they were being met with resistance as they looked at the temple foundation that was being rebuilt. uh, Some were even old enough to remember the previous temple and it paled in comparison. It wasn't as beautiful. It wasn't as as lovely as the as the previous uh, temple. So, what was going on? Things things weren't getting better. Things weren't getting completed and restored the way they had hoped, the way that they had thought. Maybe something was wrong. In other words, the the kingdom was not being restored. They didn't have the ruler, they didn't have this this king that was to lead them. They didn't have this abundance of, of provision and restoration that had been promised. And that's the context of these last three prophets here, and of Zechariah. That was the message that Zechariah brought to them. The message was the return from exile was not the ultimate restoration. The Messiah king, the Davidic king, the king who redeems and restores, going all the way back to the beginning of Hosea that we looked at the beginning of this series, that king who was promised, he has still not yet come. He has still not yet brought his kingdom. But he will. This restoration was not it. This was only a foretaste of what was and is to come. And so now, as we turn and consider Zechariah's prophecy, that's the context in which we need to understand it. Zechariah is telling the people that this king who had been promised now for centuries, he is coming. And this is what he's going to look like, this is what he's going to accomplish. And for us today, on the other side of the cross, and we have the benefit of hindsight, we can, we can see just how Jesus has accomplished and done everything that uh, was promised of him. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to consider who this King Jesus is. And we're going to do that by using these, those first two verses of the passage that we read, verses 9 and 10. And we see from those two verses, we, we see three things. All right, three points. First, we see the person of King Jesus. That is who he is. Then we'll see the work of King Jesus. That's that's what he does. And third, we'll we'll see the response to King Jesus. That's what we do. So the person, the work, and our response. Those are those three things. Let's let's look at those together. First, the, the person of King Jesus, we're told... That he is righteous and humble. He's righteous. Unlike all the kings that have gone before him, finally, a truly righteous king. God's people had suffered for centuries on the, under the rule of unrighteous kings and, and wicked rulers. And these kings and their actions, they're all recorded for us in Scripture from the books of Kings and of Chronicles and, and uh, even before that, the book of Judges. And, and all these rulers, even, even the, the, the good ones that, that truly did good and righteous things, still fell short of that ultimate standard, lacked perfect righteousness. And it was ultimately their actions of the, these wicked kings that drove Israel, and and Judah into exile. And while they are in exile, they continued to suffer under wicked rule. But only King Jesus is perfect. We're told that He is righteous. Behold, your your King is coming to you. Righteous is He. He was righteous. He was just. He was good. Now by that word righteous... What we don't simply mean is that Jesus was a good and moral person, even though he was. But he was so much more than that. He was righteous in the sense that he was fully conformed to the moral standard of God. That's what righteous means. He had fully conformed himself and all that he is to God's moral standard. See, that's how God created mankind to be. When God created man, he created them male and female with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. That is how we were created. That is how we were created to be how we were supposed to be. We were to be holy as God is holy. But we know the fall happened. We know that the world was plunged into brokenness and sin because we did not meet that standard. And no man, no woman or child since the fall has been able to measure up to that standard again until Christ came. Until God came and took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Until the Emmanuel came. And so we see in this person, this king who has come, every, every thought that Jesus ever had was righteous and holy. Every word that Jesus spoke was righteous and holy. Every single action that Jesus ever did was righteous and holy. That's what it means that he was righteous. Though he was truly a human, he, he breathed oxygen in his lungs, he, he ate food and he drank water when he was hungry and, and thirsty for his physical nourishment. He slept when he grew tired. He was like us in every way. Except without sin. Neither was he born in sin like all of us, nor did he ever commit a single sin in his entire life. That is the king, Jesus. He alone is righteous. And because he is perfectly righteous. He's also humble. This is the other thing we see about about who he is, about his person the perfect, righteous king, as he, he entered Jerusalem on that day, that triumphal entry, he, he went in humbly. And now if, if anyone had any reason for, uh, for pride, would it not be the perfect person? Do you think about that? Would it not be Jesus? Would, would it not be understandable for him to, to think a little bit highly of himself? This, this Jesus, who as a 12-year-old boy, was outdoing all the scribes and elders and rulers in the synagogue. Outdoing all of them in knowledge and, and scriptural teaching. Would it not be the one who, from out of heaven, a voice called out to him and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Would it not be understandable for the one who was able to withstand all temptations in in the wilderness, even after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, even that feat itself? Would it not be understandable for him to have a little pride? But Jesus was never proud. He never put himself above others. He was willing to be baptized by John the Baptist. He washed his disciples feet. He came to fulfill and usher in this new kingdom, which would be marked by a new completely countercultural way of life. A kingdom where the first will be last and the last first. Listen to how Mary uh, describes this kingdom and this king, even even the baby boy in her womb. She speaks of him and she says in Luke's gospel, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Or consider you know, Paul's words in, in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, I'm so excited to start Philippians. We're going to start that in the new year. Uh, and uh, we're going to work our way through Philippians, so that's uh, just a little teaser for you. Uh, or maybe even this is a little uh, a teaser trailer for that series that will start next year. But Philippians chapter 2, we've, we've read this passage. We've confessed this passage together as well. This amazing description of what Jesus has done. It says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. We can't skip over the the magnitude of what Paul is saying here. And the the teaching and the the doctrine of the incarnation and all that that means. The eternal, pre-existent, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. The second person of the Trinity humbled himself. And took on human flesh, the same flesh that he, that he himself created in the beginning. He took on himself that, so that he could be one of us. And so that he could save us from our sins. We sang, uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, one of my favorite uh, hymns, Advent hymns. And, and I can't sum it up any better. I'm going to read that third verse that we sang to us, uh, to us again. Says, "Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life, he brings us gladness. Our Redeemer, Shepherd, Friend, leaving riches without number. Born within a cattle stall, this the everlasting wonder. Christ was born, the Lord of all. Riches without end, glories that knew no end. All these things." All of that Jesus left behind. And do we have so much uh, brashness, so much pride that we would elevate ourselves above anyone else? That the king of kings, he humbled himself to be born as as a baby in a manger. The creator of all the universe humbled himself and made himself dependent on a mother and a father. He must be our example. That's Paul's ex- exhortation to the Philippians. Do not look to your own interests only, but look to the interests of others. Do not count yourselves uh, or consider yourselves more important than others. For Jesus has modeled that for us. What kind of church would we be? A church that truly strived for holiness and sought uh, to be humble like your Savior. You see, the incarnation is is God in the flesh. Our creator so humbled himself as to become one of us that that he might save us. And we can never forget that truth. That, That is this king that we see here in Zechariah, that we see fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That person, he is righteous and he is humble. That's who he is. But what does this king do? What does this king accomplish? That's our second point. Let's let's consider that now. Second thing we see is that we see the work of King Jesus. And we see that work is that he brings salvation and he brings peace. That's what he accomplishes. I, uh, I read that third verse of, of that hymn. Let me read the fourth one. This is born. thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. Thine own eternal spirit rule in all our hearts alone. By, uh, uh, by thy all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. So that's what the name Jesus means. Jesus means savior. Jesus means deliverer. That's what, that's what the name means. And he was sent to earth to save his people, to deliver them. And to bring them, that hymn tells us, and and scripture tells us, into his kingdom. And his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. That's why Zechariah will will tell us that he will accomplish these things. And we we see that uh, played out all throughout Jesus' life. Uh, In the the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we see the angel uh, comes and visits Joseph. And and, uh, tells him about this child who will be born uh, to Mary. And he says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His name is Jesus because he is the savior. And the same thing is told to the shepherds by the angels in Luke's gospel. It says, and the the angel said to, to them, to the shepherds, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And the angels will go on to declare glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is well pleased. Or consider the song of of Simeon later in that chapter as as little baby Jesus is brought uh, to uh, the temple and he sees uh, the the, uh, baby Jesus and he rejoices and And we'll get to rejoicing here in a moment. But but uh, Simeon rejoices and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. The salvation was going to be accomplished through this boy who would grow up. That is what Jesus has accomplished. Not only was he perfectly righteous, but he brought about salvation and peace. See, not only was Jesus able to save, but he was willing. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. He despised the shame because he was going to accomplish the salvation of his people. The sacrifice of the cross was that moment in time and in history where the just died for the unjust. The wrath of God against sin and unrighteousness was satisfied, and, and by his wounds we are healed. And if you have not believed that reality uh, for your own life, and if you have not uh, turned to Christ and looked to Him for salvation, then do that today. Consider all that Christ has done. You see, we cannot preach Christ without the cross, we cannot preach an Advent or a Christmas sermon without the cross. There is no good news without Calvary. That is where our salvation was accomplished. That was the moment when this king who was promised, the one who would redeem and restore, that's where he accomplished that work. He brings salvation and he also brings about peace. Our passage describes this peace using imagery of of the destruction of of various instruments of war. Uh, The chariots and and the war horses are are cut off, it describes in verse 10. Uh, The bow used for battle will be broken and cut off. And in their place, this king, this Messiah king who comes, he spreads peace to all the nations. And it says his kingdom will have no end. But you're thinking to yourself, Jesus has come, but we're not at peace. War still rages everywhere. There is still sin and brokenness in this world. And, and that is so true. And that's why we've been highlighting throughout the series as well, the two advents or the two comings of Christ. Jesus has come and we're living now in this time uh, that we sometimes talk about as the already, but not yet. Jesus is already here. He has accomplished salvation, but he has not yet come again where he will make all things new. And so as we as we're in this season of, of Advent and of Christmas, we need to remember these two things. It's not just Jesus first coming, but his second coming when he will return that we need to consider and meditate upon. See, that was the mistake that was made by uh, the Jews and by Jesus' followers in the first century, they did not understand the concept of, of two uh, advents, of, of two comings of this Messiah. Uh, but we are blessed now with, with hindsight. We're, we're blessed to understand that Jesus came first as a suffering servant, as the humble king, not as the conquering king. And in his his first coming, he accomplished salvation for his people. But in his second coming, he will come as the conquering king on the white horse who will eradicate all sin and wickedness and evil forever and will make all things new. So in that sense, then. In terms of that that first coming where he accomplished salvation, he has established peace for his people. And that is that that peace that we have now with God. That, That is what Paul says in Romans where he says that therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the peace that Jesus accomplished for his people. And that's the most important peace that we can have is peace and reconciliation and relationship with God. That's more important than peace between nations and neighbors and families and whatever else it might be. But to be at peace With God. So this this king who is righteous and humble, he's he's brought his people salvation, he's brought his people peace. Uh, That's all that the person and work of Christ has has done. But there's a third thing that we see in this text, and we're gonna we're going to uh, close with this. This third thing that we consider that we we see from the text is, is how we respond. What what is it that we do in response to this king? And the third thing that 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 response to the king, to King Jesus, we see is that we we simply behold and we rejoice. There's only two imperatives in this passage. There's only two things that it says for us to do. And the first is to behold. And the second is to rejoice. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why does it say that? Because behold, your king is here. That's what the people did on that day when Jesus entered Jerusalem. And, uh, Matthew's gospel says that the crowds, they went before him, and they they followed and they were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Bless is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And that's all that we can do as well. We don't do anything else. This is, a, this is an easy thing to say, but it's a hard lesson to learn. We're always wrestling uh, with that tension of, of thinking that we need to measure up, that we need to earn God's uh, favor, earn God's love, earn our own salvation. But we don't contribute anything to God's work. We don't contribute anything to what Jesus has accomplished, but he's the one who accomplishes it all. This is true of the salvation that he accomplished. The father sent the son who lived a perfect life and died the atoning sacrificial death on the cross. And he sent his spirit to work faith in the lives of of his people so that he might apply uh, that redemption that he's earned to them. And So all of salvation is the work of God and of God alone. And even the peace that he brings is the work of God alone as well. The rest of uh, chapter 7 that we read from Zechariah, describes this kind of peaceful kingdom that he's going to bring about. And over and over it describes how Jesus is the one who's, who's doing the work and him alone. Verse 14, the Lord is the one who appears over them. The Lord is the one who sounds the trumpet. The Lord of hosts protects them. On that day, the Lord, their God will save them the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He is the one who does the work. It is all the work of Jesus. He is the righteous and humble one. He is the one who brings salvation and peace. The victory belongs to God and to God alone. We are simply to trust in him, to give our lives to him, to behold all that he is and to rejoice in all that he does. So would, would you do that with me now? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do. We uh, confess that we uh, that it's hard for us at times to simply sit back and to, to watch as you uh, do all this work and, and to simply behold and rejoice in all that you have done. We think that we need to earn somehow our favor before you or add anything of our own making to your uh salvation and your merit. But Lord, would you uh, give us rest from that? Would you quiet us by your spirit? Would you help us to trust in you and in you alone and to, to rest and rejoice in all that you have done for us? And so would you do that even now as we continue to sing and worship you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.